The other day, I received a phishing link, and it turns out I'm not the only one. According to Interact, almost a quarter of Canadians have clicked on a phishing link. If you, like me, are interested in learning more about how you can protect yourself against fraud, visit interact.ca slash fraud prevention. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, December 7th. Joining me on NThread this morning in the studio is Stuart Thompson of National Post and Sarah Goldfeder of Earnscliff Strategy Group. Hello to you both. Good morning. Hey so today, this morning, uh, as we speak, the First Minister's meeting is formally underway in Montreal, although yesterday there was an introductory gathering of sorts, a dinner um, at a Greek restaurant. Um, many are, are saying this is going to be the most turbulent, most contentious meeting of the many Trudeau has held. He might be regretting this sort of yearly meeting promise. Um, different dynamics at play here. Obviously, there's not as many liberals around the table, so finding consensus um, on priority issues is going to be difficult. There seems to there, there seemed to be bickering right out of the gates um, over like even who could accompany the premiers. Whether it was going to be what like a, a, a note taker or a senior policy advisor was that what? It's very important stuff. Yeah, <laughs> and and so anyway, I don't know what they landed on, but Ontario Premier uh, Doug Ford also his camp um, has been threatening to walk out of the room. Uh, or not show up at all should I mean he has showed up so we, we know that that for sure but he could still stage a very theatrical walkout should um, you know uh, he, he, he I guess his some of his people were saying that they don't want it to just be federal cabinet ministers talking at them for me this kind of feels like a bunch of of rangy teens who are, are threatening to to skip class if they don't get like a get what they want if they don't get like an open book test or something. Trudeau is maybe losing the the grip he once had. Yeah, I, I think the problem that he has is that well, this is a macro problem. This is just a problem with the first minister's meeting. This is a problem that some very large provinces have conservative uh, premiers who, I mean, there's nothing really to be lost for them by Doug Ford is not going to lose any voters by taking a big swing at Trudeau at this point. Um, it's you know I think this is. Um, the way these premier's meetings tend to go is that the substance to politics ratio is very low, um, especially in this sort of stuff that happens before the meeting and the stuff that the media sees. This is, Mm -hmm. I think a really great example of this is um, Alberta's premier, Rachel Notley, who she has an election in May. Yes. And this is a real chance for her to make some noise and show people that she's working for Alberta and working to solve this problem they have with the oil differentials. So um, whether or not they solve these problems at the first minister's meeting, which I don't think anything's going to come out of there that'll solve the oil differential issue, but <laughs> this will give Rachel Notley the the platform that her um, opposition doesn't have, which is that she can go up to the national media and say, I'm working on this. We're trying really hard. We're trying to get some rail cars. Um, so when you see a lot of this going on, it is politics. Yeah. Doug Ford is trying to show that he hates the carbon tax. He's going to use this platform to show the thing that he wants to show his own voters. It's a and, stage, right? Yeah, and show yeah. Ontarians. So I think that's what a lot of this is going on right now. It's a really hard spot for 
premise of Trudeau to be in because, you know, as the federal government, uh, they do genuinely have some issues that they want to get across. Um, there are some issues they want to solve here because as much as it's also a political thing for the federal government, they also need to get the premiers on board for certain things, such as the carbon tax. Right. So there is actually sort of a legitimate th- goal that the federal government has here, whereas I think for the premiers, a lot of them, if they succeed in their political goals, that's good enough for a lot of them. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, the political goals, their personal goals, um, what what's going to matter to their local communities is seems to be trumping everything, obviously, with elections coming up in, in individual provinces and whatnot. But I mean, all this controversy around the agenda, I assume that carbon ta- or oil and gas are going to come up regardless of whether it's spelled out specifically in in the agenda. Absolutely. And I and I think that you know this is a one of the last chances that the prime minister has to kind of focus and double down on some of his key campaign promises. And when you look at what this government is all about and you look at kind of their core values, the carbon pricing piece is central to everything that they believed in and it's one of the most important things that they brought forward coming out of the election in 2015. And and they haven't you know they've 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 just started to implement it, and it hasn't gone well. Yeah. And they really want to convince um, the, the you know the provinces that this is something that's going to make sense in the long run. And they're committed to. I mean, you have Catherine McKenna's there today, but she flies off to Poland tomorrow to join in on the COP talks for another round of of you know discussion on greenhouse gas emissions. And we're living in a world where the emissions had kind of leveled off for a couple of years, but then the report this year, I think, it was just out this morning, is that the emissions, um, global emissions, yeah. have increased. Increased again, right. and so we're. I think there is a sense of urgency, and you see it in the weather um, and all of the, you know, the fires in California, the tornadoes in Ottawa. I, you, you, there is a feeling of urgency to what they need to do on climate, which I think is driving a lot of it. But frankly, it is a lot of political theater, and I don't have any particular insight into this, but I have the feeling that this is why Stephen Harper's government didn't hold these. Is <laughs> that it was really just a mouthpiece for the provinces to come up and and they, in my mind, and this is my. America showing, it feels very much like the provincial elections coming after a federal election serve like the United States midterms. And so mm. when people are not really, you know, they've, they've elected a, a federal government that they're not entirely sure of, there's this opportunity at the provincial level to make this correction. And it feels like when you look at the map and the changes between 2015 and now, if you just like color code those yeah. provinces, it's a pretty, um, it's an incredible thing to see. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's an uphill battle in some ways um, and and I think you know I don't know how much substance comes out of it but you know I think it, it is it's exactly there's Doug Ford has nothing to lose by grandstanding and 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 saying he's going to walk out and and none of them have anything to lose by putting their issues front and center and having access to national media um, who are you know grabbing and tripping over themselves to get over to talk to each of them Doug Ford wants the phrase the job killing carbon tax on the agenda and I mean <laughs> Probably Trudeau's not going to appreciate that. It just doesn't seem likely to me. It just doesn't seem likely to me. But, I mean, I think, it, you know, all of this noise with Ontario and, and Alberta is is all about Ontario and Alberta. And federally, I think um, you see a, a different discussion happening because there are different issues at play for the federal election than there are for the provincials. John Iveson, your colleague, mm-hmm. he wrote a, a really good piece uh 
I think it was yesterday. Yeah, it was yesterday. Um, about the you know Canada's constitution, and and while well intended, it you know sort of prevents us from seeing eye to eye and, and getting anything done. Well, great quote: Canada's uh, is a country fashioned and frustrated by its geography, but it has just about worked. The trick, as former NDP leadership candidate Brian Top once quipped, is to find the thread that unites the pearls. Ah, oh, very nice. Okay, we're gonna move on. A state funeral was held Wednesday for former U.S. President George H.W. Bush. Um, world leaders were in attendance, including past President Barack Obama and his wife, Michelle, and Bill Clinton and former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. President Trump came in last with wife uh, Melania and former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney delivered a eulogy. It was it was really uh, quite moving. I would suggest anyone to to go watch it if you haven't. Um, but it was about the character of this man. And Sarah, I I, I I couldn't help but think everything I heard was was about how much of a gentleman, how much of a statesman, how much um, you know of an upstanding citizen this man was. He served his country multiple times, um, and it kind of just felt like everything he said. Maybe it was just me and and the the, the dynamics of politics in the U.S. right now, but it felt like everything was a stab at Trump. <laughs> I think there's definitely a nostalgia yeah. <laughs> um, for, for, for what has come before this particular moment in American politics. And I think it, it is interesting because his passing is kind of the end of an era. Um, and that was what I think, you know, a lot of the news um, articles that were coming out, the obituaries that were coming out were really focused on how he was, you know, the, the last um, of a generation, as of the greatest generation to serve as president. Um, and, and it was interesting to see, kind of how the whole event played out. Normally, at the passing of an American president, the current American president will give a eulogy. And in this particular oh. case, Trump did not. And that was arguably because you had his, you know, George H.W. Bush's son, who was also a former president, who was able to give the right. eulogy instead. And so that was a bit extraordinary. And I think, you know, we as Americans, you know, the Bushes are very unique. I think even beyond the Kennedys, as far as, far as kind of a, a political family dynasty. And it's also notable that he was from the party that's currently ruling Washington. And he is of an era where a lot of those, a lot of the conservatives, a lot of the Republicans came came of age during Reagan and H.W. And Bush's time. And he was like, that framed the world for for a lot of us, I think, um, yeah. and and so you know the grief is is greater than losing just a president. It was a president who, in many ways, framed the global um, balance of power that we have lived under um, as Americans for you know since you know since he was president. Right. I thought I found the most sort of interesting tidbit that I listened to throughout the week was was that he was just as rare as it was for him um to go from vice president to president after Reagan. He was also only there for one term, one term. which is which is sort of seen um, not as a, 
I wouldn't say a, it's not a failure, right? It's just no. But but there was there were he had a lot of challenges in that one term. That we own a lot of those challenges. I think you know eight years is kind of a magic number in American politics because it's about how long it takes for your policies to start actually feeling. You, you feel the results of the policies that you implement your first term in really the the third term um, if you have a vice president that can follow. And so you know a lot of the kind of questionable economic theories that were the basis of some of the stuff that Ronald Reagan did in his first term came back to haunt um, his vice president when he became president. And and just globally, there was a there was a lot going on, and it was just time for a change. I think yeah. it's you see the same thing here, that the pendulum swings back and forth right. between one party to the other. But I think it's also notable that politics in the United States changed dramatically in the election of, of 92. So right. I, I think we became a, a nastier, um, kind of more personal... Um, or the narrative became more yes. nasty and more personal in that election. Stuart, what did you make of all of this, and and what impact do you think that that Bush had on the rest of the world? I've always been interested in George H. W. Bush. Like he's one of those people that I've and his um, national security advisor Brent Scowcroft is also a really interesting person. It was in that administration you had a lot of people, your Wolfowitzes and your Cheneys and your Rumsfelds who. Were, didn't quite have that conservative temperament. And when Bush decided not to go into Baghdad, which, I mean, the the human rights um, outcome of that decision, I mean, they didn't go to Baghdad, but they also encouraged the Shiites and the Kurds to do an uprising and, and, and maybe topple Saddam. And then they weren't supported, even though they had some idea they might be supported. I think a lot of the people in that administration who thought it was a good idea mm-hmm. to depose Saddam were tortured by that mm-hmm. decision. And a lot of, like, it was a massacre when right. those people, um, when there was the uprising there. Um, and, and that kind of led to the 2003 Iraq War. I don't think a lot of people know that that's the history of it. And it's a history of, you know, George Bush may have been the last a uh, World War veteran to be uh, president, but he may have been the last of the sort of pragmatic, realist foreign policy minds, and then they were followed by this kind of neoconservative. Right, his son was the president, uh, yeah. and he brought in all those neocons with him, and that was a huge change in foreign policy. And we're still living through that. And it, it was, you know, nine eleven has a lot to do with this, also, but it also has a lot to do with the the people that came through that administration. George Bush, they. He kind of had this uh, label attached to him as the wimp. Newsweek ran, you know, the, the can is he too he wimpy were, to be president? Did, yeah. yeah, he did. This have is that. a man who, at 18 years old, enlisted in the Navy to be an aviator and fly missions off of an aircraft carrier. And if that is a wimp, then I don't know what is. <laughs> I don't know what I am. He was shot down. Um, he went on to, you know, be a uh, be in public service his entire life, be the head of the CIA. Um, yeah, that's right seems to me to be an extraordinarily decent human being. Um, and then now a lot of French sort of gets into what a lot of the media talk about the masculinity of Trump or sort of the, you know, the bravado. And right. I've always had the impression that a lot of that over-the-top masculinity, it comes from a place of fear. And well, someone like yeah. <laughs> someone like George Bush, who didn't seem to me to be afraid of a lot of things, was able to allow the Soviet Union to crumble and have restraint and say, the right thing to do here is not to do anything, even though people want us to do things. And even and though- show our, our, our strength. And yeah, yeah, I could look like a coward by not doing something, but the actual brave thing to do is not to do anything at this point and not 
encourage things to happen in reaction to that. I, I was um, I was struck by by how the the Canadian media picked this up. But Canadians really um, tuned in, and, and our flags were at half mast. I, I guess because of the tie of Brian Mulroney, right? Was I think that was part of it. I, I think that there is, but there's also, I think, a bit of nostalgia in Canada for in America that has seemed to have passed us by, um, and 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 I think that you know, in general. Canadians were more comfortable in the George H.W. Bush era with how the United States was acting in some ways, in some ways not as much. But but that friendship, and I think you know Brian Mulroney has been um, a far more pronounced public figure during this particular government than he was, at least it feels like to me, than he was in the last government. So I think there is a nostalgia overall um, that, you know, kind of looking back at this generation as as they leave us and you know the baby bo- baby boomers who are in large part the leadership of both countries um i think are feeling a, um a bit like you know um their own mortality is 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 right behind them, and so I think that there is an, another level of of nostalgia there for um, the world that that they have been they put together. And now, as baby boomers start to retire, and like I guess that started a, about a decade ago, but there's still an awful lot of them around. Um, I, I think that we have kind of a a penchant for looking back at this time that was very formative. Yeah, and I think when when we look at you know that the tweets coming out of of Trump's, you know, behind Trump's desk and uh, things like things like that. I mean, it just all kind of seems completely ridiculous when you compare it to someone um, like you know George H. W. Bush. Well, I, and can I just also mention the train because the train to me was like the absolute pinnacle and the best possible so ending. Wait. Yeah. So, t- so yeah. Tell us yeah. About that. So so um, after after the state funeral at the at the cha- at the National Cathedral, um, the body of the president was flown back to Texas, and the, and after the funeral in um, in Houston, they put the body on a train, and it's and it's an extraordinary train, and it's a car with a cutout so that you can see the coffin as it comes by, and the tracks are lined with thousands of people in Texas, and and there is a pride. I mean, the Bushes are not from Texas. You know, we think of them That's as being right, from they Texas. Are. They're not from Texas, mm-hmm. <laughs> but Texas has claimed them, and I think that that is also um, something. It's also very American, um, but. It was just kind of an extraordinary moment reminding us of like whistle stop campaigns and and like politics of a bygone era to see, um, you know, to see him coming by on the train. There was part of me that, you know, when you see that the Congress closed for a week. I mean that seems a little much to me. Um, banks were closed, everything was closed. The day of mourning, it there was some excesses to me at first, but you're right though. The imagery of that train, like it, it does remind you of JFK and Lincoln. That like those were those were moments that I think are etched into American history, and because it's American history, it's world history. Well, and I do think it's also worth noting because we talked about the fact that the flags were at half mast here in Canada, but that that wasn't just Canada. That was that, you was, know, that was elsewhere. The, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I think we're going to switch off to a, a different gear here. We're going to talk about Trevor Noah and the Prime Minister's tweet. It's the part we've all been waiting for. <laughs> it's the part we've all been waiting for. We're going from somber going to... From, from old politics to new yeah, politics. Exactly. And Twitter and... Yeah. So I think a lo- like a lot of people, when I first heard about and saw the PM's uh, tweet calling out comedian and talk show host Trevor Noah offering to dish out 
50 million to a charity I hadn't even heard of. I was, I was like, okay, hold up. This seems flippant. Um, it feels frivolous. Where is this money going to coming from? But you know, after, after clarification, um, there, and that it was a part of an earlier $400 million promise laid out at the G7 summit uh, in Quebec in June, and that it, and that this chunk was going to Education Cannot Wait, uh, a charity that supports education for children for children impacted by conflict and natural disasters. I went, okay, that makes a lot more sense. But that's what Twitter does to us, right? It strips out the necessary content, uh, context, and uh, it takes away things that are important, information that's important. Um, maybe these types of announcements shouldn't be made on, on Twitter or in that way, um, because I think there's a lot more to say about it. And it kind of, to me, I mean, it just it doesn't help Trudeau out. It plays into this that narrative, right, that he's, you know, he likes to hobnob with celebs and I think there's a, a, a problematic at, things at play but the way it was delivered not not the not the con- the content of it no not the actual charity and not the work I mean this this all goes back to the G7 and the work that they were doing in the in the specific group focused on gender equity and providing um, girls with opportunity so this isn't a new idea that he had that when he saw the Trevor Noah tweet he's like oh gee that's great <laughs> but I, I I think this is the danger when you have governments that are trying to make policy accessible to everybody and so they're using things like Twitter and other social media um, avenues to try and make what they do more accessible, more um, more comfortable to this base of voters who are um, really surrounded by celebrity now because of Instagram and YouTube and everything else. And so I, I think that they've made a bit of um, it's it's a footing error on on how they're yeah. releasing big policy items. Um, it's not the first time this government has done this. Um, we were talking earlier about the 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 tweets on Saudi Arabia. I think right. the, yeah. one of the last times I was here, we were talking about right. the the tweet on on Saudi Arabia, and it was very right. much the same scenario where there's a lot of thought and planning that goes into the policy. <laughs> Three and weeks. Then it look, but the but the tweet makes it sound like somebody's you know sitting in on the I toilet know. with their phone. I know. <laughs> That's what it feels. To, it yeah. does feel flippant that way. Like it feels a bit like ah, yeah. Why not? Let's go. Let's do it, Trevor. People were correct um, in taking that from the tweet. Like that was the, what the tone of the tweet conveyed. So after thinking about it during the day, I, I kind of amended my opinion to the fact that people aren't mad about the tweet. They're mad about a sense they get from this government that. It is doing things just to look good, or it's doing yeah. things just to look good to, to a noticed. certain set of people. Yeah. And this is, whether it's fair or not, this is the whole limousine liberal thing. I actually covered um, the um, the NAFTA renegotiation, the, the USMACA, as our colleagues in the National Post call it. Right. Um, that, and, and some of there was no chapter on women's issues and Aboriginal issues, and I was tasked with digging into that a little bit. And there is sort of this general idea that this is just some, um, I'll I'll use Michelle Rempel's term, virtue signaling um, that the government does, where they say, we're really into this, and really what they're saying is, we really want women to vote for us. Hmm. Um, But the more that I dug into that, it did seem like they'd made a really earnest effort to... um, 
do tangible things in this trade agreement for Aboriginal people. And, you know, some of the experts I spoke to said that this was actually a huge step. There was no chapter in the trade deal about it, but it was something that they were celebrating. And I didn't actually see a lot of that in the media. So, you know, it's not always, you're not always going to get this side of the story. And sometimes there is this sort of general feeling, you know, you may believe that these are not areas that the government should be following because it's not a productive thing to be doing with their time. Um, But I think the idea that they're not actually doing anything or that this is just sort of optics, I didn't get the sense that that was true. I think what could have happened is when this decision to give this money was made, give this money to this charity was made, announce it, Make a you know do a press release something do like a proper that. press release you know yeah. and then <laughs> do a proper <laughs> formal press release, press release okay right. and then and then do a fun tweet right um, and then say hey look we've already done this yeah Isn't, you know like we're we're all over this and I'll yeah. say I, just to get into the sausage making here we on the Monday morning were looking into this and kind of going what is this new money or what is going on here yeah, we have right. no we idea all went, oh, and so was this part of the budget like yeah, yeah. Miriam Monsev had a press a presser that that morning for another $50 million, but we saw the $50 million and we said, that must be the presser for the thing that was in the tweet. And then we were starting to like, John wrote a column, John Iveson wrote a column about it that day. We were starting to like lower our guns about this uh, in terms of coverage because we thought, oh, they did do a press conference and explain it properly. Well, and here's but it the turns thing out they too, didn't. Is I, I do feel that media really jumped on, um, and this is the, this is the sort of reactionary problem with um, with social media and, and uh, the way journalism works is is that it go you go okay let's write let's write a story let's get it on a page let's put it put it out and without you know really digging into it and going mm. hold off I would say also though that the government did not give us an opportunity to really dig into it by sending a frivolous tweet on a Sunday night that's like, true that, that's this, true you can blame us and I think we deserve a lot of blame for stuff like this because we do have sort of like an ADD kind of itchy uh, trigger finger on these things but the government didn't do us any favors on this one and they didn't do themselves any favors on this one either yeah like they had to imagine someone's going to I mean there's so much if you go to the G7 website and you look at the at the mandate that the, that they put out there and this was driven by Canada as part of their leadership on the G7 this year I mean this is not frivolous this isn't something that they didn't spend any time on you can agree or disagree with the premise behind mm-hmm. focusing on ensuring that you know that women and girls are educated and especially in high conflict areas that you have an opportunity for the this the citizenry of the next generation to be educated you can debate that as a as a policy option but you can't fault these guys for not doing their homework no. on it like mm-hmm. it's and it is there there are you know there's documents there that are 50 pages long that explain the philosophy behind all of this and so it's really unfortunate when they lean on twitter um right. to, to to make these announcements and it's it's um and I think you're right. It drives everything into this. Oh, have you seen what's on Twitter? Did you see what just came out on Twitter? Did yeah. you see? And so there's this there's this motivation to move information faster than we know that it's happening. And I, the other thing we we didn't really talk that we were. I'm going to throw this into the mix. But I think it's really interesting because over the last 48 hours, there's been a Twitter storm around the American ambassador that I think is really interesting that is also poorly informed because it is being presented like um, it, it was something that was new information. Um, but it, it, it's a retweet of the 2017 television interview she gave. 
Right, mm. exactly, and, and, yeah, yeah. and, and it's which made news at the time. Which yeah. and and but but all of a sudden right. has gotten far more pickup on social media than it right. did initially, yeah. which yeah. I think is really extraordinary. Well, and it's like how Twitter can drive those conversations into places where they yeah. like it doesn't necessarily the conversation shouldn't necessarily go just, um, yeah. based on kind of fact and reality is really fascinating to watch, and and I think it's something that um, we have to be careful about as we look into the 2019 elections. I, I agree. It strips the necessary context, as I was saying, and I think that um, you know political decisions and leadership and diplomacy and everything shouldn't be done there primarily. It, there's got to be a, a different outlet for that. That's it. That's all for us today. Um, thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Stuart. Can I get your Twitter handles, please? Yeah, my mostly dormant Twitter account. <laughs> it is dormant. You've yeah. got to get some activity up there. No, I'm trying to have a healthy brain. I, brain, I told you. Right. Um, it's Stuart X Thompson. Okay. And Sarah? Mine is um, at Paragua Rosada. Every time. So Pink good. umbrella in Espanol. <laughs> Amazing. See you next time. The 2020 Network is presented by Interact and is a production of Canada 2020. Canada's leading independent progressive think tank. You can find out more information about us at www.canada2020.ca. To help us reach more listeners like you, do us a solid and subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, and give us a rating. If you happen to be in the Ottawa area in December, Canada 2020 is hosting a number of free or low-cost events that may be right up your alley, and they'll help you get out of the house on a cold, snowy night. On December 12th, we'll have Ben Rhodes in our studio space to talk about his book, The World As It Is, a memoir of the Obama White House. It's currently sold out, but we are working to add some more seats, so stay tuned. The day after that, join us for Anatomy of a Deal, LNG Canada, and the biggest FDI in Canadian history. You can stay up to date with all of Canada 2020's events by following us on Twitter or Facebook and signing up for our mailing list at canada2020.ca. Interact maintains one of the world's largest debit networks by supporting 28 million active debit cards in Canada. Thanks to their secure technology and zero liability policy, Canadians can make everyday purchases with peace of mind. Learn more at interact.ca slash fraud prevention. 